in general, women are not used to using the right terms and phrases for different parts of their anatomy. Sure. You know, growing up using almost like pet names for your, you know, your vulva or, or same for men. I think we need to get away from that and start calling a spade a spade, start calling um, your vagina, your vagina, your cervix, your cervix, your, your vulva, your vulva, and bring up the next generation of girls and women to really understand what those terms are so that you can be your own advocate when it comes to your health. Hey everybody, this is Matilda Aguera-Cooper and you're listening to Finesse Your Wellness, the podcast that explores what it means to thrive and live well. On today's episode, we're looking at the F word, aka fibroids. Now, these peculiar growths appear in your body, more specifically the uterus, and they either mind their own business or they become an issue that needs to be dealt with. And I've had several friends over the years that have fallen into the second camp. As for me, I had quite a surprising encounter with fibroids nearly 10 years ago. I was on a press trip promoting medical tourism in Thailand. And one of the perks of the trip was getting a full medical, like a proper MOT in one of the best hospitals out there. So I get this once over and then I'm given a report and the doctor says, yo, FYI, we kind of clocked some fibroids. And when you get back to the UK, you might want to get them checked out. Now you can imagine, I was like, excuse me, what? (laughs) And I was immediately worried because technically I would not have known they existed if I didn't have this medical. And that's the interesting thing about fibroids. They're strange, they're mysterious. There's this question of what to do or not do about them, but they're also a very real truth for many of us, especially black women and women of color. So to help me learn a bit more, I chatted to Dr. Dupe Burgess, founder and CEO of Bloomful. That's a platform that's raising the standard for women's gynecological care with a new digital care pathway within women's health. Previously a medical doctor, Dupe saw firsthand the deep-rooted healthcare inequities that exist, and she's on a mission to do something about it. In our chat, we explore fibroids, inequities in healthcare, and why our gynae health is a matter that can't be ignored. Enjoy. Hey, Dupe, welcome to the Financial Wellness Podcast. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, and and thank you so much for finding some time to have this conversation. I've been wanting to speak to you for the longest um, because looking into the work that you do with Bloomful and just your medical background, I know you're going to give me some wisdom <laughs> that I kind of need. So yeah, I, I trust you will do pay. Um, but I guess just to kick off, it'd be great to kind of hear a little bit more about the work you're doing with Bloomful. How did it come about? And yes, and why is it such a passion for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So firstly, thank you again for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Really great to speak to you about this. Um, I'm Dupe. I'm the founder of Bloomful. Um, Where do I start? Well, I started my career as a doctor, trained in London. I worked in the National Health Service for about seven years. Um, And really, that's where the journey with Bloomful starts, because I saw firsthand the, the problem that we are now solving. Um, I ended up leaving medicine because I felt a little bit disillusioned and I really, really wanted to do something else, learn something new, challenge myself in a new way. Um, I went into consulting in the city, worked for a consulting firm, BCG, um, and ended up doing a lot of strategy work for health companies and, and really just gaining confidence outside the, 
medical world um, and commercial experience and an understanding that you can solve problems in healthcare. And after a few years, I decided to sort of circle back to this problem that I had seen um, and figure out how to solve it. And that's really what I've been doing at Bloompool for the last couple of years. We are solving the problem around the very complex and chaotic journeys that women have to go through to get the care and the attention that they need around their gynecological health. Um, specifically, we, we tend to focus around the more chronic pelvic conditions, things that affect your mental well-being, you know, perhaps your ability to work, your financial situation, you know, your day-to-day living um, and c- conditions which quite often stem from your 20s or before all the way through to menopause. Um, and we're doing that by building a scalable platform that enables women to triage their symptoms and then access clinical care um, through consultations, remote consultations, um, blood testing at home, or digital prescribing. So really just trying to support women in the diagnosis and management of some of these very, very common conditions. Um, yeah, that's pretty much the sum of it. Nice. And when I think about my sort of journey through just wrapping my head around women's health, I always think about, you know, when I initially had my period and then over the years, you know, you get little pockets of things that you need to be hyper conscious of, like, you know, getting your cervical smear test and, you know, checking for lumps and and breast cancer and all these things. Um, But the one thing that I probably knew absolutely nothing about was, was fibroids. You know, if nothing else, I I think my mom at some point, you know, she kind of like had a very discreet surgery to have them removed. Um, But I never really understood them, but it was just one of those things where they either were completely meaningless or they were quite a serious issue. So I guess maybe just to kick off the topic and why I wanted to focus on it with you is because I think there's so much mystique and stigma around it. So I suppose, could you kind of break down what fibroids are and why are they particularly common amongst Black women and women of colour? Yeah, sure. So fibroids are essentially growths, non-cancerous growths that happen or occur, I should say, in the womb. Um, They are usually sort of muscular in in terms of how they're made up and they can very much be different sizes, anything from, uh, you know, a centimetre or or less all the way through to, you know, ball-sized. And they can essentially occur anywhere in or around your uterus, your womb. Um, And the funny thing with fibroids is that For some women, um, they can have quite a big impact in terms of your symptoms. So, you know, you may experience things like heavy periods or painful periods, lower back pain, um, tummy pain. You know, if they impinge on your bladder system, your kidneys, they might cause things like frequency in terms of your urination. They might impinge on your bowels and cause you to feel constipated at times. So it's quite a broad range of symptoms, obviously, depending on the size, the location, the type of fibroid that you have. But actually, uh, for some women, for many women, there are actually no symptoms at all. And, and it might be something else that um, that leads them to, to learn that they have fibroids. Um, so I think one of the reasons why it's kind of this mysterious thing is because obviously there's such a broad range in terms of the presentation, in terms of the effects they can have on women. And there are lots of overlapping symptoms along sort of symptoms that overlap, I should say, with many other conditions. Um, And so 
obviously there are many women that might go through their whole life without even knowing they have them. There are many women that might find out fairly early on in their lives. Um, and there are some women who will find out somewhere in the middle, perhaps they're trying to, um, get pregnant or start a family. Um, and they're suffering with fertility issues or or miscarriage and, and through the investigation of that, they, they then find out. So it's, it's kind of this very broad ranging thing. And, um, yeah, and I think there's this kind of broader topic around women's health in general um, and how women's health is sort of addressed and seen, uh, which also plays into to it being a little bit of a mystery. Mm. And then it feels like Black women, women of colour, whenever yeah. the fibroid conversation comes up, they're almost at the centre of it. I mean, is that mm. fair to say? Is, is there a reason why that's the case? Yeah. So we know, for example, that women, uh, black women uh, are more likely to get fibroids, have fibroids. Um, I don't have the statistics off the top of my head, but I know that for black women, the likelihood, the prevalence, the instance is, is much higher than it is for other ethnicities. I don't think that there is a consensus as to why that is the case. Um, and this speaks definitely speaks to the general lack of research across women's health um, and especially around these conditions that seem to affect many women. Um, There is definitely a lot more investigation that needs to be done. There are a lot more studies that need to be, um, you know, taken out around these conditions to understand what the pathophysiology is, you know, what the underlying etiology is, why it is that particular groups have them more. But yes, you're, you know, you're definitely right that they frequently um, affect black women. Um, but sadly, we don't have really have a reason why that's the case. Mm. And is there like a diet or kind of lifestyle link to developing fibroids? Uh, perhaps it perhaps that there, there is um if there is i don't know of it i don't think there are any there's any there are many other people that do either um it could well be due to diet it could be a genetic fa- it could be genetic factors there are so many biomarkers in medicine um, and in women's health specifically which haven't been understood yet they haven't been collected yet and the data is just so poor there are so many gaps um and i think this is one of the reasons why women's health kind of take such a long time um, to diagnose and why the journeys are so long because if you even if you speak to doctors you'll find that there is also a lack of knowledge amongst them um, you know the, the there are so many gaps at the top of the pyramid that it doesn't really trickle through to you know the shop floor and doctors don't really have the tools that they need to answer these questions and to manage these things and and to even diagnose them so um, yeah there are lots of black holes there that need to be filled and it, you know, there are a lot, obviously there is a, there is clearly something that means that black women are more likely to get them, but what that is, who knows at this point. Wow. Okay. And, you know, earlier you mentioned that the symptoms of fibroids are pretty wide ranging. You know, at what point does someone think, okay, I might need to seek medical attention about this? Yeah. So I think, um, for 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 women when they're starting to sort of have these symptoms, um, and again, this this kind of it's overlaid with the lack of educate or the poor education around women's health in general. I think there needs to be much more discussion around you know what's the, what's normal and what's not normal. Like, what does that scale look like? Where do you go from having pain, which is you know very much manageable with over the counter medication um, and in line with what you you know regular cramps that you would expect with your period over to 
debilitating pain, for example, that stops you going to work, stops you going to school, you know, causes you to drop out of university, for example, um, or pain that stops you walking um, or prevents you from getting out of bed. You know, I've spoken to women that have any one of those, that level of pain, you know, and there is this kind of, um, I see an issue with how women often perceive their pain. And sometimes there is this narrative that it's part and parts of being a woman and, you know, it's, you should grin and bear it and get on with your day. Um, and I think in answer to your question, you know, when you should seek help is when it really is, it impacts you um, beyond what you are able to sort of cope with on a day to day and what you should have to cope with. If you have pain, for example, that is not managed relatively easily with over the counter medication, that is an issue that you should see your doctor about. You know, if you have bleeding, which um, requires you to change your sanitary wear or, you know, your um, sanitary products, you know, super frequently, more than once every two hours or that kind of thing, then you should be seeing a doctor about it. If you are flooding or having big clots, that's something that you should definitely seek help with. Um, and you know, if you're having any symptoms that affect your ability to urinate or go to the toilet regularly, that's definitely something that you should seek help with. Um, and I think, you know, on the one hand, a lot of women do seek help with these things and they do still feel like they are dismissed or, or not really listened to, or, you know, are unheard by their by their doctor. Um, and that is a problem that the medical industry really needs to get on top of. Yeah. I mean, that's quite an interesting point because, um, I had a friend who had fibroids and when she was seeking treatment, I mean, everyone had a different opinion (laughs) as far as what she could do. And I can't remember who she decided to opt for in the end, I actually feel it was someone who either had a bit more experience just working with black women more broadly but I definitely remember that kind of informed the decision that she she made I mean for someone who is at that stage where they actually have to do something about their fibroids because in fact before I ask that question just to clarify if they're not bothering you do you need to do anything about fibroids no so if you um if you don't have symptoms from them um whatever those symptoms might be, then they don't necessarily need to be treated. And actually many fibroids shrink down. Um, so one thing I should say is they are related to the amount of oestrogen that you have, which is why they typically occur sort of during your, the time in your life where you have the highest amount of oestrogen, you know, between 20 and 50, but actually after your menopause, they do tend to shrink and get smaller um, and sometimes even disappear. So, um, the mainstay of, sort of management tends to be around symptom control. And if you don't have any symptoms, uh, then there's not necessarily a need to treat them. Nice. And say on the flip side, you're at a stage where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm having these symptoms. It's been identified that I have fibroids. They're, you know, significant um, in terms of size. What are the sort of treatments available? Yeah. So I think, again, it really is so dependent on the actual um, fibroids, where they are, what size they are, what the level of impact they're having is. Um, But certainly there are some medications that can be used to help reduce the size of them. And beyond that, um, there is surgery that 
can take place to either remove them or, or, or shrink them or, you know, whatever it might be. I'm not, I'm not a surgeon, don't profess to be one. Um, but yes, typically it's around either removal or shrinking of the fibroids, but that's something that your specialist would speak to you about and lay out the options because as I mentioned, it very much depends on location, where they are, what size they are and what the impact that they're having on you is. Thank you for that. And I guess thinking about my journey again, um, once I knew I had fibroids, I think I became so much more just aware, intentional about my gynecological health more broadly. And so how can women just be just more proactive, whether mm. that's just getting checkups, thinking about things like fibroids, thinking about the way their body's changing, you know, especially as we start to get older. Like I know that now that I'm in my forties, I'm like, girl, things are changing <laughs> and I don't think I can slip, you know, or at least just be kind of ignorant about it. I mean, even things like perimenopause, which never used to be on my radar. I'm like, girl, before you know it, <laughs> these yeah. years are coming, you know, what can we do as women just to just be on top of it? Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting question because one shift that I've definitely seen and even the time that I've been a doctor and more specifically in the last few years is just like more conversation about this, more awareness on social media, wherever it might be. I think people are not as afraid to really put these issues on the table, put these discussions out there um, and and talk about them, whether it be perimenopause, menopause, um, or any of these other gynecological conditions. I think the biggest thing that women should do and can do is literally to educate themselves about what the state of play is around their bodies. Um, in the same way that mental health has become a real kind of topic of conversation in the last few years, again, people are much more aware of the sort of range of mental health conditions that are um, in existence and what we should do to manage those. I think we need to apply the same thinking in this area. I think women should take um, a personal responsibility to learn about their anatomy, um, understand what their reproductive or organs are all about. Um, and I accept that historically we've not been given that education, you know, sex education at school, reproductive, you know, anatomical education at school is basically non-existent. Um, and it's sad that we have to sort of retrofit this and sort of take ourselves back and, and, and relearn this stuff from scratch. But I think you only really get a, a, a good level of um, you know, personal autonomy or, or you're only really able to advocate for yourself fully when it comes to your health, when you understand it. Um, and of course, you know, there no one's, I don't think there's any need to understand things like to a cellular level, but I think the fact that not, some, something like half of women don't know where their cervix is, for example. Mm, wow. um, I think something like, I read the other day, 25% of women don't know where their vagina is. The fact that we use... Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> was that an age range? Like, was there a specific, was it women I, broadly or... I mean, I, I didn't, I'd have to look it up. I didn't see an age range, but I think in general, women are not used to using the right terms and phrases for different parts of their anatomy. Sure. You know, um, I think, you know, growing up using almost like pet names for your, for your, um, you know, your vulva or, or same for men. I think we need to get away from that and start calling a spade a spade, start calling, um, your vagina, your vagina, your cervix, your cervix, your, your vulva, your, your vulva, and bring up the next generation of girls, um, and women to really understand what those terms are so that you can be your own advocate when it comes to your health. You know, I've got two daughters and, um, I make a point of 
you know, essentially using the right terminology and the correct um, anatomical words to describe things. Um, And same with my son as well. So I think all of that to say that education is the most important thing, first of all. Um, And we've got a lot of catching up to do um, as a society around what that looks like. Um, I think that you know, we're moving in the right direction, but there's a, there's a lot to learn and we need to use the resources that are available to us um, in, in terms of that. And on top of the next layer, on top of that education is like knowing what you need to do to sort of maintain your health in the same way that we do exercise or, and we know that we should eat great, uh, a good variety of fruit and vegetables. We need to know, you know, what is the sequence of um things, activities, tasks I need to do to optimise my gynaecological health, keep me in as good health as as possible, um, optimise my fertility, all of those things, whether it be cervical screening and making sure that we keep on top of those appointments, even though life is very busy, um, whether that is, you know, checking for infections, if you get those, you know, symptoms that allude to that, whether it be, um, you know, seeing, being proactive, actively seeking help, from your doctor if you have symptoms which fall outside um, the norm, essentially. Um, and also being persistent if you're not happy with what you're being told, if you feel you're being brushed off, um, seek a second opinion, um, come onto platforms like Bloomfall, you know, speak to other doctors. There are people out there that want to help with these conditions, but you know, we need to find them. Yeah, I was going to actually ask um, what some of those preventative measures um, could be. And I, I think it's interesting you mentioned the persistence piece because when I um, interviewed a doctor before, you know, who works for the NHS, you know, she was very candid and said, look, you don't get a lot of time with us. You know, we've got, you know, an overwhelming, overwhelming demand for our services. Um, you might just get a check in and check out. And so I guess I'd be interested to know how is Bloomful kind of helping with that challenge um, that the NHS is facing? Yeah, well, I mean, our platform is there to sort of help to bridge that gap. We're in a we're in a time where the NHS is really, really struggling with the load. There are so many bottlenecks, um, particularly um, in that sort of transition from primary care, uh, i.e., GP care, through to secondary care in the hospital and seeing a specialist. So many women I've spoken to over the last two years um, are struggling with that wait, long, you know, long waiting list, 18 months, 24 months to see a specialist. And these, these are women that are having symptoms that are impacting their day-to-day quality of life. Um, perhaps, you know, pain related symptoms, bleeding, which obviously causes fatigue and tiredness. Um, and they're, they're having to wait. And so at Bloomfield, we're really trying to improve that level of accessibility, um, in streamlining that, Kind of process that it, it you, women have to go through to get in front of a specialist. On our platform, you can see a doctor within a week, um, and you know we're trying to essentially make it just easier for you to get the care and the, the attention, the diagnosis, and the management that you need around these these conditions. And there are other platforms as well that that exist in the in this same realm. And I think we've all got a very similar mission, which is essentially to streamline that care um, and, and to make it more accessible. Mm. I think um, it's interesting because one of the challenges, and I don't know if I can speak for the whole community, but (laughs) uh, dare I say, you know, there's this issue around trust and NHS. And, you know, you've already touched on the fact that there's, you know, biases um, within healthcare and the medical profession. You know, there's also this temptation to think, well, maybe if I see 
a black doctor, <laughs> a black mm-hmm. female doctor, I would be better off. I mean, is there some truth in that? Is there, you know, something we should be thinking otherwise as far as our healthcare? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that in every walk of life, people, um, you know, people sort of, they have an affinity towards people that look like them. Um, I think to a huge degree that is human nature. Um, it's how we're, you know, we've evolved as people, as humans. Um, and I think it does play into biases. Uh, well, I know it plays into biases around how um, certain groups are, are treated. We know that there, for example, is a much higher chance, something like four or five times higher chance of um, having serious complications or even dying in the sort of perinatal period for black women compared to um, other races. And um, that that is accounting for other medical conditions or issues which might increase your chances of death. Um, so even, even accounting for those medical issues, there is a much higher chance of, of dying in the perinatal period. So at the same time, um, babies who are black or mixed um, also have a higher chance of death in that postpartum period. So, you know, we know that biases have a big impact on your access to care, but also how you actually experience it. Um, and I th- there have been studies into how um, care differs if you are treated by somebody that is of the same race as you. And those studies from from memory do seem to allude to the fact that your your care is likely to be more successful um and you're likely to have a better experience if you see um a practitioner who is who is of the same um race perhaps as you are um you know that said i think we are living in a very global world and um i think there is something to be said for us sort of really i i suppose trying to solve that problem so that, you know, you or I don't have to feel like we only want to see a black doctor. I think there's, there's a lot that, of work that needs to be done to undo a lot of those biases and, and should be done and is being done to undo lots of those biases. I think we've got a long way to go. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, it's a really interesting kind of phenomenon. Yeah. Cause to that point, I mean, I only know so many doctors. I know that percentage wise, the likelihood of me seeing a black doctor, at least in my local GP is kind of slim. So what can I I guess healthcare providers do to just be a lot more culturally competent, more sensitive to the needs of more diverse patients? Yeah, I think it again comes back down to education first and foremost, and just being aware that it does impact the way that we um, perhaps manage people, you know, how we treat patients. I think it's very easy to just say, you know, see, all, every patient should be treated exactly the same. And, and, and of course, that is the case. Um, but I think there are, there's, there are lots of organisations now whose work it is to literally undo those biases um, and really kind of retrain our thought processes to, to see beyond um, things like ethnicity or gender, whatever it is. Um, I do think that there is a huge way to go in the NHS, to be to be completely honest. Um, I don't think it has been as big a priority as it should be. Um, I think obviously there are lots of issues in the NHS which are all sort of competing for attention. Um, but I, I think there's there's a lot that needs to be done still. Uh, I think as as patients, we should, as I said, continue to seek other opinions if we're not happy with how we've been managed um, or with the care that we've received um and and you know be your own advocate be forceful if you need to you know use 
every tool that you have available to you, whether it's, um, as I said, seeking other opinions, asking other people, um, writing to your surgery, uh, whatever it might be, but, you know, don't settle for what you're not happy with, essentially. Yeah, love that. And so as far as more broadly, when we think about gynecological healthcare and actually outside of the NHS, are there any kind of recent advancements that could benefit women, particularly women and women of uh, black women and women of color? Advancements on the medical side. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an area of frustration, I think, for everyone that's working in this field, which is that I think there's just not, again, just not enough being done in terms of research um, and in terms of therapeutics, essentially, in this area for anyone, let alone black women. I think that, you know, we know that there are huge data gaps. We know that there are groups that are doing research in this field, but we also know that, you know, women are woefully underrepresented in things like clinical trials. Black women segment, you know, when we segment women further to black or Asian or any other ethnicity or any other group, we see that is even less, you know, the representation is even lower. Um, And what that does is essentially mean that there are, there's just much less research taking place, much, um, you know, the, the amount of production of new treatments or new therapeutics or new solutions is, is much slower. Um, it takes much longer and, um, that takes a long time to trickle through into our everyday, um, kind of toolkit, you know, medical toolkit. So, you know, there isn't enough being done. That That's the simple fact of it. Um, and the, the, this is something that I think needs to be addressed on a much, much higher level than um, currently is, you know, through the government. How do we get much more publicly funded research to be done in this area so that we can get many more therapeutics available for the management of these conditions? Um, you know, that said, I have heard that there are trials that are taking place, especially up in Edinburgh, for example, around non-hormonal treatments of things like endometriosis. Um, and, you know, that's that's a big area which, which has got a really big black hole. You know, how do you manage a lot of these conditions without putting women on contraceptive pills, which they often don't want to take and shouldn't have to take, um, especially if you're actually trying for a baby, for example. Um, so, and, and there, there is a little bit of work being done in that, in that space, but again, not enough. And uh, it's something that, you know, I really hope to see change um, in, in the next few years. Yeah, I mean, me too. <laughs> and I guess in the meantime, what are, I guess, some practical tips for just maintaining our overall gynecological health? You know, what should we just be, what's the little that we can do? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is really keeping on top of things like your checks. Um, you know, we know that the, for example, the numbers around cervical screening are seem to be getting lower and lower. More women are sort of defaulting or not taking it as a prior, priority, or um, pushing their, their, you know, not making those appointments. It's not a nice necessarily a nice experience. It, it can sometimes be, um, you know, an uncomfortable situation. I know I've spoken to women who um, specifically don't want to have a cervical screen done because they've had a really bad experience in the past and there doesn't seem to be any kind of support there in getting them back into the surgery for their next one. So we need to address that and women need to take the steps that they can do in terms of getting those appointments done and and making sure that they're accepting that screening that is available. That's the low hanging fruit. Um, I think also being vigilant around your symptoms, any changes in your symptoms, um, any changes to your usual 
um, menstrual pattern, whether it be that your periods become irregular or your periods stop, for example, um, whether it be that you've noticed other symptoms, you know, hair growth, hair loss, um, weight gain, weight loss, all of these things are potentially pointers um, towards things that might be going wrong. I think just being much more intentional and being much more vigilant than we historically have been around those things is really helpful for picking things up early. Um, some people talk about your period as being a vital sign now. And I know that there's a couple of startups in this space around how do we use your your period and how much you are bleeding, for example, um, as literally a vital sign in the same way that we do um, blood pressure, heart rate, um, saturations, all of, all of those things. Um, these, uh, these symptoms that I'm mentioning, you know, they can be a really good indicator towards things that are happening in your life. If you are stressed, for example, you might notice your period stop and that might be, um, an indicator to you that something needs to change in your life outside, you know, something needs to change for you to um, be able to manage that stress better or redivert that stress somewhere else. So I guess all of that to say that I think it really pays to be vigilant, to take note of things, use, there's so many apps available now, use those to, to track things like your period, your, sim- your symptoms, um, and ask for help when you need it as soon as you can. Um, be vocal about what you need um, and look for a second opinion as and when you, you, you need to. Nice one. And I've taken notes, <laughs> especially <laughs> the cervical screening. It's like, yeah, Matilda, get on top of that. Um, so final question, given the fact that you know so much about women's health and, you know, you used to be a doctor, how do you finesse your wellness? How do I finesse my world? Um, yeah, so I think like, so for me, most important thing for me is decompression time by far. And, you know, in my case, that literally means being by myself. Um, I think I mentioned I've got three young children, yes. <laughs> so it can be very, very <laughs> difficult, very difficult to sort of find a moment to myself. Um, I'm sort of in the thick of it right now in terms of bringing them up, but I definitely feel the most recharged when I'm able to sort of be still, not speak, not be spoken to, um, maybe read a book. Just being on my own really helps me to relax, recharge. Um, And I try to literally have at least half a day a week where I don't have any meetings. I'm not speaking to anybody and no one's speaking to me in that time. Um, I also do like to work out, um, especially on my Peloton. Uh, I've had it it for a few years, but I only actually started using it properly um, this year. And it does make me feel great when I have... Peloton. I know, I know. Done a workout. I feel like it's like one small win for the day when you've completed a Peloton workout, you know? And I think we need to take the low-hanging fruit, (laughs) you know, when we can. Um, and I think the other thing is just doing things that fulfill me. Um, I think for me that it's a bit of a double-edged sword. I do tend to sort of go too deep on things sometimes. Um, and try, I try and keep them slightly lighter. Like, so for example, I've taken up piano in the last couple of years. Okay. Um, I, I know, I know. I've got my grade two piano exam actually next, next month. So in and amongst everything else, I'm also practicing for that. And my husband's like, why don't you just relax? Like, you don't need to do these things. I'm like, I just like doing it. I don't know. It's like, it's a way for me to switch off from work and from life and, um, and just do something that's very much just for me. So yeah, I love all those little challenges as well. And um, yeah, doing things that are just for me. Brilliant. And so finally, how can people find out more about you and and more importantly, Bloomful? Yeah. So, um, okay. So 
full disclosure, I'm not hugely present on social media. Um, so probably best to follow Bloomful. We are on Instagram as bloomful.io. Um, our website is also bloomful.io. And we are fairly active on LinkedIn as well. So any of those three areas would be great. Um, it'd be great for your, your listeners to follow us. You know, we're very early in terms of our development, but we've got such a great mission behind us. We've got, you know, I've got a really great vision of where I want this business to go. And um, it's, it's been a really fun ride so far. And it's just really great to get people's support along the way, you know. Brilliant. And yes, you got a support in me for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dufay. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. As we get older and really step into our womanhood, the importance of our gynecological healthcare is undeniable. So here are my top three takeaways. Number one, know your anatomy. We cannot depend on that little bit of information that we may or may not have remembered from school because according to research, we really do not have a clue. In fact, there was a survey done a few years ago that found one in 10 women were unable to correctly identify parts of their reproductive system from a diagram. So one in four misidentify their vagina and over half misidentify their uterus. Ladies, we have got to do better. YouTube is our friend. Google is our friend. And Amira is your friend for a VSC, a vaginal self-examination. That's where you take a peek at your vulva and vagina to help you better understand your body any changes that take place during your menstrual cycle and any problems that may need the attention of a GP. And on that note, number two, be on top of your health checks. This includes breast exams, pap smears, pelvic exams, your blood pressure and cholesterol checks, STI screenings, eye exams, dental exams. You know, these are not just nice to do's. These are essential to your health. Finally, number three, recognize that health inequity is very real. Black women, we need to be intentional about our health care and we should really have high standards for ourselves, even if the rest of the world hasn't caught up yet. We should ask the questions, get the second or third opinions and do whatever we need to reinforce the fact that our health care matters too. Amen. <laughs> so that's a wrap for this episode of Finesse Wellness brought to you by Fly Girl Collective, a space for black women and women of color who want to level up their wellness and lifestyle. You can follow Flygo Collective on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or sign up to our mailing list at flygocollective.co for lovely tips and goodies delivered straight to your inbox. Also, if you love what you heard, rate and review us on iTunes. And if you're kind enough to give us five stars, thank you so much. I will love you for life. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. Catch you on the next episode.